Well, it's certainly good to see all of you here with us this morning. Uh, if, my, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the, the opportunity, and I'd call it a privilege, uh, to be up here today and um, introduce you to and, and walk you through, walk us through uh, the third chapter in the book of Jonah. Uh, if you haven't been with us for the last several weeks, we've been uh, in this series called Castaway. And we're just kind of going chapter by chapter through this amazing book and seeing how we can not only identify with Jonah, but uh, in, in some of his mistakes, because we, all of us, we're, we're some mistake makers too. I think all of us would own up to that. Um, but instead of learning from our own mistakes, we have the opportunity in this book to see some of the things that Jonah got right. We looked last week at Jonah's tremendous repentance and how that could be a model for us in our own repentance. And we've talked about some of the things that he did wrong. Uh, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, we talked a little bit about that in week one. We're going to talk about it again uh, next week. Some of the ways that, that Jonah's perception didn't line up with what God wanted him to do or to see or to think or to feel or any of that stuff. And so we'll, we'll spend some more time walking through again um, some of the things that Jonah got wrong again next week. But today... Uh, we're going to dig into this third chapter in the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles and you want to go ahead and, and be flipping over to the book of Jonah, we, we said in week one it's kind of about three-quarters of the way through the Old Testament right there in the middle of all those uh, other prophets that sound like Star Wars characters. Um, he's, he's in there. Uh, you can find Jonah in there. And we're going to be in the third chapter today and, and look at this, this thing that God uses in Jonah to do something miraculous. And so uh, normally I don't read... Um, an entire chapter uh, when, when I preach. We don't, we don't typically read everything in a chapter, but today that's exactly what I want to do. The third chapter in Jonah is only 10 verses, and so I want to read those for us. I'll, I'll make some comments and some remarks along the way as we get started, but then I want to show us not only what happened to Jonah and what Jonah did and the things that Jonah said, but how we can, again, take those and apply those to our life. And so that's what I want to do. So if you have your Bibles or if you want to follow along with this on version, or if you just want to turn your attention to the screen, uh, the verses are, are going to be there. So let's start together. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Come on, somebody. I know you feel this too. Aren't you grateful that God gives us second chances? Amen. Now that's good news, that, that, that God is always there. When, when we mess it up, when we fail, when we fall short, that he is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth, and you can just keep on counting chances. But here we see that, that Jonah, if you, if you read these verses, in the next couple of verses, you're going to see they sound a whole lot like what, exactly what God told Jonah to do in chapter 1. Jonah said no. Jonah ran away, and God gave him the second chance to do the very thing that he was supposed to do the first time, and I don't, again, I don't know about you, but I know about me, man. I love that I serve and believe in a God who is a God of second chances. Second verse, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So like I said, this sounds exactly like what God told Jonah to do in chapter 1. And this is the thing about when we run from God. This is the thing about second chances as it pertains to God. When you say no to God and you, and you walk this, this road of repentance, when you walk through this, God, I understand that you're God and I'm not and I was wrong and you were right. When you walk that, God will take you right back to the place where you said no and, and have you to say 
yes. You see, oftentimes in our human relationships, whether it be husband to wife or friend to friend or, or, or relatives or whatever that is, we can, we can find places where there are irreconcilable differences, where you have your opinion and I have my opinion and we can just agree to disagree and then we can kind of move on. It don't work that way with God. Don't is grammatically incorrect, but it's good preaching. Like this sounds better when you say don't. It don't work that way with God. There is no such thing as an irreconcilable difference with God because he's God and, and, and we're not. So when there is a difference of opinion with God, God will take you right back to that place. Come on, let me show you. Come over here. Remember? Remember when you said no? Right, I need to hear you say yes. You want to know why? Because I was right and you were wrong. Tell me. Now, if that changes your perception of this lovey-dovey God, that you're like, well, God's just nice and gentle. No, God is perfect. He's holy and he's righteous. And God wants his way because he knows his way is perfect. So when we say no to God, he will take us right back to the place where we said no, and he will demand from us a yes. It's exactly what he did to Jonah. Jonah said no. He ran away. He jumped in the way. jumped in the water. Got swallowed by a big fish. Big fish vomits him out. You want to know where? The exact place that God told him the very first time to go. He'll take you right back to the place where you were supposed to say yes and demand it of you. Verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. I think at this point he, he should have. According to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. It took three days to walk across uh, the city. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, so about halfway in or so, and he called out. Now, watch this. This is Jonah's message. Jonah has been through all of this turmoil and all of these things because God wanted him to preach a message to Nineveh, this is the message they got from Jonah. Are you ready? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Now, now get this picture. This is pretty cool, right? We, we said it a couple weeks ago or last week, I can't remember. Jonah was in the fish for three days. And during his time in the fish, we said that the, the, the gastric acids in the, the fish's interior would have bleached him. He would have been bleached. He would have been like glow-in-the-dark Jonah, right, like white hair. I'm just imagining like if I got a, maybe that's why they, they, he looked like a zombie. Like maybe that's why they listened. But Jonah shows up. He's just bleached white. He's been in the well for three days. He's probably like all feeble and weak looking or whatever. And he walks up and he's got an eight-word message for the people of Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, be overthrown. In Hebrew, it's only five words. Like Jonah just didn't have a whole lot to say to the people of Nineveh. But watch this, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they just believed. They believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them. To the least of them. Let me ask you a question. What made them believe? I really don't think that it was because Jonah was glowing in the dark. Like, I don't, I don't really believe that. What made them believe? Here's the answer. We don't know. We don't know what made them to believe. All that we know is that God sovereignly appointed this moment, this exchange, this interaction to get glory for himself. If you ask me, this is the greatest miracle in the book 
of Jonah. We said in week one that a lot of people get hung up because he survived for three days in the fish. Not the greatest miracle. Not the greatest miracle in the Bible. In my opinion, not the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah. This is the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah. That Jonah shows up feeble, weak, angry. We're going to learn that next week. He's still angry at the Ninevites. He preaches an eight-word sermon. It wasn't very good. His heart wasn't in it. And the whole Ninevite people believed God. It's it's the greatest miracle that takes place in the whole book. The Ninevites, despite Jonah's half-hearted message, respond with complete repentance and heart change. It gets better. Let's keep reading. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. I, I, I'm just going to be honest. As I'm reading this, I, I got to wonder, what, what did the cows do wrong? Like, like, I understand the people having to repent and they're going to be sad and they're going to mourn and all this. Other. What, what, what did the cows do? Here's an interesting thought, though. I, I heard this from, a, from another preacher this week who taught on this very chapter. Do you know what cows do when they're hungry or when they're upset or when they want something? They, they moo. Cows moo when they're hungry, when they want something, when they're upset, when they're angry. They moo. And, and the, the king of Nineveh is so overwhelmed by the guilt that he feels and his desire to respond to God that not only does he desire that the whole city would mourn and to cry out, but even the herds and the flocks. Mooing sounds a lot like mourning. Have you ever heard a cow? Like, like it's, it sounds sad. And this is what he's after. That, that every being, every living, walking thing in the city of Nineveh was going to fast. Verse 8, he says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn away from his evil and from the violence that is in his hands. Here's what we're going to do today as you guys leave. We're going to be handing out sackcloth. Like you guys, you take that, you just put on. Just kidding, we're not doing that. Um, verse 9. I love, I love the king's, I love this response. He says, who knows? Who knows? Maybe, just maybe, if we'll turn away from our evil, if we'll show God that we're truly sorry by all the, the fasting and the wearing of sackcloth and the sitting of ashes, and if we as a city would do this together and demonstrate to God how, how re- remorseful we are over our sin and our evil, maybe, who knows? God may relent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. See, up to this point in, in the text and up to this point in history, Nineveh has been known for its might. They were a, a mighty military. They were strong. They were wealthy. It says that Nineveh was a, a great city. It was a cultural hub. It, it was great in a lots and lots of ways. And now the king says, not only will, will, are we going to be, we've been known for the might of our army. We've been known for the, the might of our finances and our riches, but today we'll be known for the might of our repentance. And we'll be known for the might of our turning. And then verse 10. When God saw what they did, 
how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. Why? Why did God decide to, to change his punishment, to change his judgment against the city of Nineveh? Because God overflows with mercy and compassion. God does not delight in judgment. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God does not delight in these things, but he's a, a merciful father. He, he's a, a father. You know, this, is, this is true for me. In my life, I've got two kids. And when they mess up, when they do something wrong, when they get in trouble, and, and when I can see brokenness on their face, not, not upset because they got caught, right? Not sad because they're in trouble, but truly broken over their mistake because other people were harmed or something went wrong that, they are, that they're remorseful for. The minute their heart breaks, so does mine. And all that parental rage, Jesus is still working on me because i got some rage issues. Like all that parental rage that I feel as I try to discipline and correct and realign my children's directive, direction. All of that that I feel, all the anger that I am and all the disappointment and all the frustration, it, it melts away and I'm left with a heart that's broken for my child who's broken hearted. And God is the same way. When he saw the broken heart of the people of Nineveh, when he saw their, their true and complete repentance, God's heart softened against the people of Nineveh the same way that it softens against us when we sin and we repent. When we mess up and we go to God with true brokenness and true repentance. God is, he's like that for us. That's how God feels and that's how God interacts with us. There are four major themes in the book of Jonah. The first that we see, and we've talked about it a little bit, we saw this, we see it both with Jonah and with the Ninevites, is God's pursuit of the sinner. I, I, I didn't put these on, on the screen for you, but this might be good to write down. The four major themes of Jonah. First is God's pursuit of sinners. It's God's pursuit of you. As we continue to walk away, God follows God always pursues the sinner because he desires that we would come to repentance. First Peter, the book of First Peter, it says that God does not desire anyone to, to, to be destroyed or does not desire death for anyone, but desires that all would come to repentance. God pursues the sinner. The second major theme in the book of Jonah is a contrast of God's heart to ours. Jonah was the Israel of his day. Israel didn't think very much of people who weren't Israelites. But God thought very much of the Ninevites, though Israel did not. Jonah is a representation of Israel in his day. In the New Testament, it's the Pharisees in contrast for God's love for people. The Pharisees were more about the, the, the law of God and the rules and the systems and all that other kind of stuff than they were about people. And Jesus came to show the difference between what it looks like to love people and what it looks like to love the law. It was the Pharisees of his day. In the modern day, I believe it's a lot of churches. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of Christians in the churches. We are the modern day contrast that God is trying to get into us. And we've, we got the first step right. We're at church. Like, or at least we're trying to figure it out. But what God would desire to show us is the contrast in how he sees people versus how we see people. God wants us to see and feel about people the way that he sees and feels about people. 
He's trying to, to communicate that to us. And so us in the church, as we read the book of Jonah, have an opportunity to learn and to see how God thought differently about the Ninevites than Jonah did. Though we all said together in week one, I say all because I'm assuming that you agreed with me. That given the same set of circumstances and situations in which Jonah found himself, that we would have probably made the same decision. To run from God instead of administer mercy to these people that have done evil things to the Israelites. And God is trying to show us that he desires for us to see and to feel about people the way that he sees and feels about people. That's the third major theme. And the fourth major theme is this. God wants to show us how he can powerfully use his people in the world. God wants to show us his power at work within us as we submit and are obedient to him. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about together today. We've, we have or will address all four major themes in the book of Jonah. But for today, I want to focus in on just that fourth one. And that's God's ability to powerfully use his people in the world. It's something, it's, it's this big scary word that we talk about it every now and then in churches called evangelism. Evangelism is the, the practice of or the work of or the ministry of sharing the gospel with other people. And right now, there's a lot of you already getting nervous. I know. And for those of you that, that aren't Christians, and this, this might be the reason that you don't come to church anymore. Like, see, every time I come to church, you're just trying to convert the rest of us. Right? It's like, that's not, 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 not true. Like, not, not entirely true. Though we do desire for you to meet and love Jesus. See, for, for people outside of the church, they think that all Christians want to do is, is share their faith. And for people inside the church, they think, all I don't, I, I don't want to share my faith. I, I don't want to do it. There are statistics everywhere that show that, that a large percentage of Christians believe that they are to share their faith. That sharing their faith and sharing the gospel with people is a requirement of being a Christian. Yet a much smaller percentage of people actually do it. So if so many people believe that we should do it, yet so few Christians actually do it, where's the disconnect? Let me, let me, let me tell you. There's, there's two things. There's two reasons. Primarily, I don't know where to start and I don't know what to say. But those two fears, those two fears, they're very rational fears and I get it. Because, and let's just be honest, it can be socially awkward, right, to share the gospel, to share your faith. I heard somebody define evangelism this way. It's two very nervous people talking to each other, right? Nobody in that, nobody in that conversation is comfortable. Nobody's having a really good time. But for the believer, the reason that they're doing it is because we do believe wholeheartedly that God calls us to do it, and we're going to see that he does, and that there's a very specific role that we play in that. But here's what i got to have you know. The reason that we feel the fears that we feel is because there is something that we don't yet believe that we should in order to be able to become an effective evangelist, to be comfortable in sharing your faith. There are two things, two things that we have to believe, two things that we should believe that will make us an effective evangelizer. That's not a word. All right, and here they are. Number one, we have to believe that salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, if that sounds familiar because you were with us last week, it should. We addressed that same point last week, but I wanted to, to bring it back today. What we looked last week in, in, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, he told us, God's salvation belongs to you. But, but here's what I want us to see. Look, as, as we look at it through the context of Jonah chapter 3, Jonah preached and ate 
word sermon. His heart wasn't in. It wasn't a very good sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all that he said. But the response was overwhelming. The king got involved. It made a decree for the entire city. The whole city repented. Can you imagine? Do you know what that would look like in the city of Kannapolis? How awesome that would be if every person that wasn't yet a follower of Christ decided to all at once follow Christ? That, that's what, by the way, that's what we're trying to accomplish. Like, that's what we're trying to do at Fusion City Church. We're trying to tell them. Trying to teach them, we're trying to show them so that they can't. But here's the thing, Fusion City Church can't do it. I I can't do it. Pastor Quentin, Pastor Jonah can't do it. You can't do it. But God can do it. Because salvation doesn't belong to Pastor Brian, Pastor Quentin, or Pastor Jonah. Salvation belongs to God. He's the one that does the saving. That's why Nineveh responded, not because Jonah was an awesome preacher. Jonah was a horrible preacher, at least in this instance. Yet God used his message powerfully to change a city. I wanted to share a few verses with you just to kind of demonstrate this point because you guys know I love to make a point and drive it home. So I'm going to give these to you rapid fire. They're going to show up on the screen. You don't have to write them down if you don't want. You can. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says this. It says, no one, that's no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They didn't do it, he did it. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, it was God that did it. Man didn't do it, God did it. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is, watch this, not your own doing. God didn't save you because you were awesome. It's not your own doing, it's the, it's the gift of God. It's God that gives the gift of salvation, not as a result of work, so you can't earn it because he doesn't want anybody to be able to boast. God saved you for his own glory. You got no reason to boast in it because you didn't do anything to get it. I'm not angry, I promise. I'm just yelling. All right, John chapter 6, verse 44, last one. No one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws him. You tracking with that? You can't even come to God unless he pulls you. And I will raise him up on the last day. Hear me, church. Those two fears that we feel, I don't know where where to start and I don't know what to say. It's because we believe that in our words is the power to change somebody else's life and you're wrong. It's God's power that changes people, not you. Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, I did not come with eloquent words or fine preaching but I came under the demonstration of the, the, the power of the Spirit of God so that your faith might not rest on man's ability but on God's power. That's not a direct quote. I slaughtered that, but it's something to that effect. You know, there's, there's typically two, two ways that I feel when I get them preaching up here. Some days I walk off the stage and I get backstage and I kind of give myself a little fist bump. Nailed it. Right? Just kidding. I don't really do that. 
But th- there are some days when I preach that I, I feel pretty good about how I delivered. I didn't, you know, I didn't flip-flop any words. I didn't say anything wrong. I didn't say anything inappropriate. It happens from time to time. Um, I didn't do any of that stuff. I felt, like I, was, I felt like I was funny. I felt like I was engaging. I felt like people were tracking. Everybody's eyes were on me. Like it, it felt good. And I, I leave feeling like I, like I performed well that day. And that, that because I performed well, that, that people are going to respond. And that's pretty much the days that I get to, hey, good job today, Pastor. Thanks. Like, awesome. Then there are, then there are the other days. There are the other days where I do. <laughs> this I actually do do. I walk off stage and I Jesus, I'm sorry. I, there's absolutely no way that anybody is getting saved today. You know what? Jesus, I'm not sure I'm saved. Like, that was terrible. How? Like, what in the world? And those are the days it never fails. It never fails. It never fails. Those are the days where I stand at the back sometimes with my head down. Like, oh, just, just, just let today be over. And, and one or actually it's, it's usually it's multiple of you will come up. That was the best. God so needed that today. I'm so, I'm so moved and I'm so changed and I can't wait to see how I'm going to apply this to my life or whatever version of that that you tell me. To, to allow me to know that, that that message today spoke to you. And every single time that happens, this is the reminder that I get, salvation belongs to the Lord, not to Brian. Like I, I want to preach well. I try to preach well. I spend a lot of time working on this craft. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how well I preach because the power is not in my ability to deliver a well-preached sermon. The power is in the ability of God to change a life and to change a heart. And the same, and what same, thank you. The same thing that is true for me is true for you. So that fear that I don't know where to start and I don't know what to say, it doesn't matter where you start and it doesn't matter what you say because it's not you that does the changing, it's God. The second thing that we have to know to become an effective witness of the gospel is this. Faith comes, I'll add only, it's not in this verse, but faith comes by hearing. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing. I would add only. Faith comes by hearing the word of the Lord. When we say the word of the Lord, it requires some, some clarification. The word of the Lord is not just the words written in Scripture, but the word of the Lord is this thing that is active and alive, that is at work. When we read Scripture, We're reading words on a page, but that is not the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is what is happening in us because the word of the Lord is not a thing. It's a power. It's this thing that that moves as we share it. There's power added to it. So when you begin to talk to somebody else and you're rambling and bumbling and they're hearing masterpiece, right? And that is not you. That is the power of the word of the Lord. There is power in it. When we make the effort to share it, God adds the power. You tracking? God is the one that does the changing. Again, that's the salvation but comes from the Lord part. But here's what we have to understand is that the word can't do its work where it's not heard. The word, I'll say it again. The word can't do its work where it's not heard, which means it's our objective to get the word of the Lord to people. We have to be the messengers for that. We have to be the carriers of that. Our objective, hear me, our objective is not their salvation. Let me clarify. Because we want people to respond. 
But our command, the command for us, was not to go and save people. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. You don't get to do the saving. God does the saving. The command for us is not to save. The command for us is to speak. Because faith comes by hearing. But they can't hear unless you're speaking. You see, I believe there's this myth in all of Christianity that God is just out there magically changing people's hearts and sending them to church. And that's not true. Because the word of the Lord is what does the changing. That doesn't happen magically. It happens through the instruments that God chooses to use, and that is his people. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. The book of Acts is incredible. If you read through the whole book, the book of Acts is is really amazing, all 28 chapters. And inside the book of Acts, there are these, is this on display, this wild and miraculous power of God, miracles of God. Things are going on all over the place, tremendous amount of miracles and exciting things happen in the book of Acts. But there is one thing, there is one thing in the book of Acts that only happens, only happens through humans. You wanna know what it is? The proclamation of the gospel. Humans are the only source of proclaimed gospel in the book of Acts. I'll give you three chapters in a row where this happens. Acts chapter 8, we're introduced to this, just called the Ethiopian eunuch. There's an Ethiopian, he's reading the scrolls, he's reading out of the book of Isaiah. And he begins to have some thoughts about God where he doesn't understand what God is trying to tell him. So God teleports Philip. Philip is over 100 miles away and is like, and like Philip is there. Like just, God just picks Philip up from wherever he is and moves him to go and preach the gospel to this Ethiopian eunuch, and he's subsequently baptized. God, like God was speaking to this eunuch through the word of Isaiah, yet, but it required that Philip be brought in to administer the gospel, to share the gospel, to talk about the gospel. Fast forward two chapters, Acts chapter 10. There's a man, Cornelius. He's a Gentile. And at this point, there was a lot of debate within uh, the circles that were following Christ as to whether or not the, the gospel was for Jews and Gentiles or just for the Jews. There was a lot of debate going on among the apostles and some other stuff. And so Cornelius, this Gentile, is praying. He's a, he was a God-fearer. And so he's praying, and he starts to have some questions. And an angel, ah, like an angel shows up and speaks to Cornelius. But instead of the angel being the one to deliver the gospel message, you know what the angel tells Cornelius? Hey, you need to go find Peter. Peter's on the other side of the city. Go find him, and he's going to share the gospel with you. At the same time, or about the same time, Peter is on the other side of the city. He's praying. He's in the spirit. He's having this weird, wild dream about a white sheet, and there's all kinds of dirty animals in the sheet. There's animals they weren't supposed to eat, like pig. We call it the pigs in a blanket dream. He's in pigs in a blanket. He's coming down, and he's trying to figure out what does it all mean, and what it is is God telling Peter that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's for those that you consider to be unclean as well. So God uses this dream. He sends Cornelius over to Peter. And Peter's like, I'm glad you came. I got something I got to tell you that the gospel is for all people, including the Gentiles. And Cornelius and all of his house believed. But here's my question. Why didn't the angel share the gospel with Cornelius instead of sending him to see Peter? Because there's one thing that humans can do only. And that is we are the message or we are the vessel by which God gets the message of the gospel to other people. It's us. It's you. It's me. Now, I skipped chapter, chapter 9, but I want to go back. In Acts chapter 9, we, pre, we meet probably the most famous 
person in all of Scripture other than Jesus. It's the Apostle Paul. He's not the Apostle Paul, yet he's Saul. And he's on his way to Tarsus, not Tarsus, we covered that. He's on his way to Tarsus, or he's from Tarsus. He's on his way. I don't remember where he was going now, forgive me. But he's on his way, and this Jesus appears, knocks him off his horse with a blinding light, knocks him off his horse. Jesus appears to Saul, and he says, hey, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Stop beating up on Christians. Stop doing bad stuff to Christians. Jesus himself showed up to speak to Saul. And you know what he told him? Here's what I want you to do. Once you get up off your tail because I just knocked you off your horse, I want you to find your way into town. You got to go find a man named Ananias, and he's going to tell you about the gospel. You see, there's one thing that God always uses humans to do, and that is to share the word of God. It's our responsibility and ours only to be the ones who share it. So here's the point. Humans are the ones who are designed to preach the word, to preach the gospel. God is at work all around us taking care of the rest. And if we'll understand and own these two facts, that salvation belongs to the Lord, that faith comes by hearing, then we should become the most bold, confident proclaimers of the gospel the world has ever seen. But it requires us to get over our own fears and to believe that salvation is his and that the only way that it's going to get to people is if I'm the one that carries it, then we've got to do it. This should lead us to two responses. Here they are. The first thing, we should be desperate to get the word of God to people. Make a list of your favorite verses. If you don't have some favorite verses, go and find some. We can help you. If you, got, if you don't know where to start or what verses to send people to, ask us. Maybe we'll put them on Facebook this week. I'll do that this week. I'll make a post of some of my favorite verses that proclaim the gospel. Second thing, bring them to church. Well, we should be desperate to get the word of God to people. This is a great, great starting point for that. Bring those that are close to you, far from God, to church. Bring them here and make this a starting point. If salvation comes from God and faith by hearing, then getting the word of God to people has to be our first priority. It has to be our top priority. We should be on mission, desperate to do that. Second thing, we should pray like crazy If it's God that does the saving, asking him to do what only he can do, what only his power is able to do, should be our greatest resource. Now we're going to see in chapter 4, Jonah was praying for the opposite. Jonah was praying the Ninevites wouldn't respond. But Jesus, when he was on the cross, what was his prayer? Remember we said Jesus was the greater Jonah? Jesus got everything right that Jonah got wrong? Jesus' prayer on the cross was this, God forgive them, they don't even know what they're doing. He was praying for them. If you take that term in the Greek, if you look at that, his prayer in the Greek, it was, the, it was in a tense of continuation, meaning that Jesus was not only praying for the people who had hung him on the cross, but he was praying for all people, past, present, and future. It was a continuous prayer. Jesus was praying that you would receive the gospel. If Jesus needed to pray, I think we should too. It should be our greatest resource. Let me ask you this question. How many people are you praying for? How many people are you praying would receive the same salvation that you've received? Let me ask it a different way. I found this quote 
just so you guys know, I want to, all cards on the table, we're, we're, I'm borrowing a lot of the content for this series from a, from a man who preached the exact same series. He even, we even stole his title, <laughs> Castaway. Um, but the man's name is, is J.D. Greer. He's a pastor of a church in Raleigh. And as I was studying through his notes, I found this question as he preached this message about this text. And I want to show it to you because it, it floored me. I hope that it floors you. Here it is. If God answered in one fell swoop every prayer that you prayed last week, would anybody new be in the kingdom? Yeah, you responded about how I did. Because I was convicted. I, I, I don't have a list. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't have a list of people that I was just simply praying for their salvation until I read that quote. So, so I'm, I'm going to say it again like you hadn't already heard it once. But if God were to answer every prayer that you prayed last week, how, how many new people? How many new people? How many friends and family members and coworkers and classmates people that you're friends with on Facebook because we know they don't count as real friends. That you know don't have a relationship with God. How many of them? How many of them would be in the kingdom if God decided to answer all your prayers? What are we praying for? Who are we praying for? Because see, it's up to God to save them, but it's up, for us. It's up to us to care enough to get them the word. But if we can't even pray for them, how do we expect to actually share anything of value with them? So here's what I want us to do. I want to pray for us right now that we would have the boldness this week to, to do just what we learned. You see, in, in Jonah's story, Jonah was the obstacle that prevented the Ninevites from being able to hear the word of the God. His, his, his disobedience, his running away, it kept God from being able to do what God wanted to do. But even in Jonah's reluctant submission in his eight-word sermon, God was able to do incredible things. Jonah was the obstacle to them. I don't want any of us to be an obstacle for the people that God has placed in our lives. Because salvation belongs to him. But faith comes from hearing the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I hope that this message doesn't fall on deaf ears. God, I know that it hasn't fallen deaf on mine. And I'm so overwhelmed or have been by the guilt of knowing that there are people in my life that are far from you. Yet, God, I couldn't remember the last time I prayed for them. So, God, I thank you for a fresh look at that in my own life. And I pray, God, that in the same way we've learned from Jonah's mistakes, God, that all of us under the sound of my voice right now could learn from mine. That as a church, we would commit together this morning to doing better, to trying harder, to see people the way that you see them and to pray for them the way that, you, that your son prayed for us on the cross that we would see their insufficiency yet care enough to have concern for them. God, would you make us bold and powerful witnesses of the gospel? 
Give us the audacity to share it in all kinds of places and in all times because it's so worth it. Your word tells us in Isaiah 55 that the word of the Lord does not return void, that it doesn't come back empty, that every time the word of the Lord goes out that it does the work that you've designed it to do. God, forgive us for where we failed. Forgive us for our fear, believing that salvation belonged to us and that there was something we could say that would get somebody saved or something that we could say that would keep them from it. God, that doesn't belong to us. That belongs to you. It's your power that changes. It's your word that moves. It's your presence that changes hearts. So God, use us, your people, as powerful vessels, pouring out your love and your word to those that know us but don't know you. God, help us to do that well. And we'll know as a result that God, when there are those that come into a relationship with you that didn't have one before, that God, it wasn't us that did it, but you.